0: Now let's turn to Matthew the fifth chapter. We've come now to the section in the Gospel of Matthew, which is traditionally called the Sermon on the Mount, and more specifically, the introduction to the Sermon on the uh, Sermon on the Mount, which we call the Beatitudes. This is Jesus' philosophy of life. This is an explanation of the Christian lifestyle. In getting acquainted with people, I like to ask them what their philosophy of life is. You can find out an awful lot about a person if you if you ask that question. I ask them what uh, what is it that fulfills you, what gives you meaning in life, what are you living for, and all sorts of amazing things usually uh, are brought forward as explanations for their life. But uh, the most radical philosophy of life that I can envision is the one which Jesus presents here in what we call the Beatitudes. We're we're so used to hearing these statements, we almost take them for granted. We we fail to see how how utterly unorthodox Jesus' philosophy of of life is. A number of years ago, I was sitting on the hillside, which is the traditional site for the Sermon on the Mount. It's on a, a little hill that overlooks a cove on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee, and I was reading on the uh, reading the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, trying to envision what the audience was like listening to Jesus as he first uh, spoke these words. And it occurred to me that there, there were people very much like the people that we live with today. Hard-bitten Jewish businessmen, uh, hardened Roman soldiers, uh, fishermen, prostitutes, every conceivable type of person gathered around Jesus listening to him, to him speak. And these words would have seemed just as radical to them as they do to us. Can you imagine some tough old union boss like John L. Lewis or George Meany, if he were still alive, acceding to this philosophy of life? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. See, this is a totally unorthodox way of of living life. You Number know, of years ago, I was reading *The Pursuit of God*, A. W. Tozer's book, and I. I saw this uh, statement. A fairly accurate description of human race, of the human race might be furnished when unacquainted with it by taking the Beatitudes, turning them wrong side out and saying, here is your human race. And so I decided that would be a good exercise. So I have rewritten the Beatitudes from the standpoint of modern secular men. It would go something like this. Blessed are the self-made and the self-sufficient because they did it all by themselves. Blessed are those who play it cool because they avoid being hassled by life. Blessed are those who demand their rights because if they don't, someone else will. Blessed are those who go for all the gusto because you only go around once. (laughs) Blessed are those who show no mercy because anyone dumb enough to get caught deserves it. Blessed are those who bend the rules because after all, everyone is doing it. Blessed are those who intimidate others because if you don't, someone else will grab your chips. Blessed are those who despise the good because everyone knows that good guys finish last. Now, happily, not everyone in modern society would describe uh, their philosophy of life in those terms, but many would. But now let's look at Jesus' statement, beginning with verse 1 of chapter 5. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I want to make a couple of general observations on the Beatitudes before we look at them in in, uh, detail. The first is that there are eight Beatitudes. They're found in verses 3 through 10. Verses 11 and 12 are not uh, additional Beatitudes. They're simply an expansion of the eight. Blessed are you when men persecute you for the sake of righteousness. I say that because some people want to equate these Beatitudes with the Ten Commandments. They They see ten Beatitudes here and believe, therefore, there are ten commandments. But it's not Jesus' intention to give ten laws. In fact, these are not laws at all. These are characteristics of the citizens of the kingdom. In other words, these this is the lifestyle of people who are subject to the king. You don't do these things to get into the kingdom. They are a manifestation of the fact that you've already submitted your life to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, the second thing I would say is that these are not not platitudes. They're beatitudes. And by platitudes, I mean pious, wishful, hopeful. Statement. Jesus is not saying, I wish this is the way the world uh, really was and people behaved in this way. That's not his point at all. This is reality. He's saying this is the way we can be when we're subject to the king. And it's living like this, ultimately, that satisfies us." And if we as men and women want to be happy and satisfied and fulfilled, we must live like this. It's almost as though there are two alternatives in life. If we're living like this, We'll be fulfilled. If we're not fulfilled, then we're not living like this. Some of you remember the happiness is craze of a few years back when uh, t-shirts and everything else bore the statement, happiness is, happiness is a warm puppy, happiness is living in Chickerville, Texas, or whatever. It's almost as though Jesus is saying, happiness is being meek. Happiness is mourning. Happiness is being poor in spirit. So if we want to be fulfilled and satisfied and happy and secure, then we need to live like this, subject to the king. Now the first of the Beatitudes is found in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The word translated poor here simply means to be dependent upon another. Uh, The term is used in the same way that we use the word dependence when we're filling out our income tax form, those that uh, who are supported by us. So the man who is poor in spirit is someone who is dependent upon someone else. Now he's not talking here about poverty of, of material means. A man can be very wealthy and still be poor in spirit. It's not net worth in dollars. The issue really is who or what are we dependent upon for life. It's poor poverty in spirit. It's an idea that's very prevalent in the Old Testament, and anyone hearing Jesus' words would know uh, immediately what he was referring to. Isaiah, speaking for the Lord, puts it like this, Where heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool? Where is the place that you build unto me, and where is the place of of my rest? For all those things my hand has made, and all those things have been. But to this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit, and whose heart hungers for the Word. It's that sort of person that Jesus is referring to. Someone who sees that he needs to rely upon another. He needs to believe in someone other than himself. And that's the king. Someone who submitted himself to the lordship of Jesus Christ and is content to be dependent upon God. You know, it's really very foolish to believe that we're independent men and women. It doesn't take much to bring us down. One little microscopic, uh, piece of protein can, uh, can make you sick and, and keep you from doing many of the things you would like to do. Some reverse in your, in your, uh, financial fortune. Anything can happen. So many factors in life are unpredictable. It's really folly for, for me to say I don't need anybody but myself. But yet that's, that's what we do. Some years ago I read an article entitled The Art of Being a Big Shot. By a Christian businessman Howard Butt, and uh, among other very good things, uh, he said this, "It is my pride that makes me independent of God. It's appealing to me to feel that I am the master of my fate, that I run my own life, call my own shots, and go it alone. But that feeling is my basic dishonesty. I can't go it alone. I have to get help from other people. And I can't ultimately rely on myself. I am dependent upon God for my very next breath. It is dishonest of me to pretend that I'm anything but a man, small, weak, and limited. So living independent of God is self-delusion. It is not just a matter of pride being an unfortunate little trait and humility being an attractive little virtue. It's my inner psychological integrity that's at stake. When I am conceited, I am lying to myself about what I am. I am pretending to be God and not man. My pride is the idolatrous worship of myself, and that is the national religion of hell. So the mark of a man who's in the kingdom of God is that he's dependent upon another. He's placed his faith in Jesus Christ as Lord instead of believing in man or any other resource. And the result is that he has everything. That's the strange paradox of Christian living. When we give up everything, we have everything. Jesus says, if we're poor in spirit, if we recognize our poverty, then ours is the kingdom of heaven. We don't have to wait for it. We have all the resources of God, the resources of this invisible realm that we referred to last week, to live life as God intends us to live it. So when we're weak, that's when we're strong. But as long as we uh, think of ourselves as strong and competent and able, then we are truly weak because we've set aside the mighty resources of God and replaced them with our weak, puny, ineffective humanity. So that's where Jesus starts, and that's an appropriate place to begin because that's the essence of living in the kingdom of God. It's recognizing our poverty of spirit and our need for someone who can give us the strength and the wisdom and the resources to live life the way we know we ought to live it. The second beatitude is found in verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now, he doesn't mean here that Christians ought to be grim and joyless and morbid and gloomy. It's just that we take life very seriously. We're not playing life for nickels and and dimes. We're moved by the the hard facts of life around us. As we saw last week, the people living in Galilee were in 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 desperate straits. They were living in grinding poverty. They'd seen one oppressor after another march across their land. And they were a, a humiliated people. Life was tough and hard. And it still is today. We can't reverse the hard facts of life. Life is hard. And there are things about us that cause us to mourn and to weep and to be sorrowful. And it's not right, therefore... To try merely to escape the hard facts of life, but rather to take our comfort in God. Not run to pots, or some pill, or alcohol, or something else to relieve the pressures of life, but to find our joy, and our peace, and our contentment, and our reason for being in God. And that's why Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn, who are oppressed, and who are pressured, and whose circumstances are difficult, because God will comfort you. The third beatitude is found in verse 5, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. He doesn't say blessed are the weak, because meekness is not weakness. It's not niceness. It's not being mild like Clark Kent. Jesus was meek, but he was anything but mild. There's a children's song that I can remember that goes, Little... Blessed Jesus, meek and mild, look upon this little child. That's utterly wrong. There is absolutely nothing mild about Jesus. He could get very angry at times. Meekness is not sweetness in life, and niceness. It's a non-defensive position. It's a refusal to defend yourself, to retaliate when you're treated unjustly. Um, I was reading Sports Illustrated yesterday, last week's, edition, and there was an article there about some of our Olympic hopefuls. There was a short paragraph about John Smith, who, as you know, is the 400-meter world record holder, and who was barred from amateur athletics, but uh, only recently has been uh, reinstated. And I don't know if John Smith has become a Christian or not, but he said a very interesting thing. When he was trying to uh, to, to gain uh, readmittance to, uh, by the AAU, he said, Vengeance is not mine, it belongs to the man upstairs. And you see, he understands, whether he's a believer or not, at least he's grasped the truth. And when we take things in our own hands, we always make things worse. It's not wrong for us to defend the rights of others, and we need to, to put this thing in balance. Meekness is not standing by while others' rights are defrauded and taken from them. But meekness means that we don't defend ourselves. A.F. Finley says, True meekness is seen in those who with an acute sense of wrong control the natural impulse to show anger and to retaliate because in obedience to the will of God they accept provocation or wrong as discipline and as an opportunity for showing a spirit of patience and love. Meekness is the power of love to quell anger, to restrain a violent and hasty temper. The irritation may be keenly felt the temptation to retaliate may be very strong, but love keeps the upper hand and imposes discipline and self-restraint. So meekness involves a determination not to defend yourself when your rights are being taken away. You let God defend you. As Peter describes Jesus' actions, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness like he lived for righteousness. He didn't retaliate. He didn't answer back when he was unjustly accused. He just took it and he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Moses is described in the Old Testament as the meekest man on the face of the earth. When he was threatened or attacked, he would go to the little tent in which he worshiped God and he would say, All right, Lord, you, you heard what they're saying about me out there and you need to do something about it. But he wouldn't defend himself. There's another illustration in the life of Abraham and Lot. When a, when, when a, a problem developed between Lot's uh, herdsmen and Abram's herdsmen and threatened to divide the family, And so Abraham took Lot to the top of Mount Pisgah and he let him choose the best of the land rather than create division in the family. And Lot, though all the land belonged to Abraham, Lot chose the best for himself. He chose the well-watered plains of the Jordan. And Abraham stepped aside and let him have the very best, though he possessed all the land. Someone has said Lot was out looking for grass, Abraham was looking for grace. He let God make the choice. And uh, after Lot chose, God took Abraham to the top of the hill and he showed him the dimensions of the land to the north and south and east and west. And he said, it's all yours. If we let God fight for us, he'll give us the best. But meekness, you see, is giving God the time and the right to fight for us and not retaliating, fighting back on our own. And as Jesus tells us, the meek are happy and fulfilled because they inherit the earth. That's the way you conquer everything and everyone. The fourth beatitude the is described in verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. It's helpful to ask yourself from time to time, what do you hunger for? Is it power or more money or a better house? or nicer clothes, or a bigger car, or uh, a better husband or wife. We all hunger for something. Maybe it's acceptance or love from someone who doesn't accept you. But we all know that if our hungers are misdirected, we're never satisfied. If you're looking for love from someone else, at a bottomless pit. No one can fill that, that void in your life. There's nothing that will satisfy us if we hunger for the wrong thing. We just want more of the same. But Jesus tells us if we hunger and thirst after righteousness, we'll be filled. Now, I found that I have no problem knowing what righteousness is. No one has to tell me what it means to be a righteous man. My problem is becoming a righteous man. I need help. I was watching Joshua the other day write thank you notes. His mother set him to the task of writing thank you notes for all of his Christmas gifts and and he was uh, putting addresses on envelopes, and I heard him scratch for a while, and then he would wad the envelope up and throw it away, and he'd work on another one and wad it up and throw it away. And I went over to see what was wrong. I realized immediately what had happened. As long as he wrote on lined paper, he was all right. But so when he started writing on the envelopes, he couldn't keep the lines straight, and they were going down the envelope this way. And it frustrated him, frustrated him because he knew it was right, but he couldn't stay in line. And I thought, now that's very much like life. I want to walk the straight line. I know what's right, but I need help. And what Jesus promises here, that if we pursue it, that's all he has, hunger and thirst after righteousness, and God will fill you. You see, what God sees is not, is not uh, your performance necessarily. He sees the intent of your heart. That's why he loved David. David's performance was often very poor. But God saw the intent of his heart. And he sought the Lord with all of his being. And and Jesus says, if we hunger and thirst after that sort of righteousness, if we seek God with all of our heart, he'll satisfy us. He'll fill us. The fifth beatitude is in verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Mercy is help for the helpless and the weak. As I've mentioned before, when I think of mercy, I always think of Charlie Brown and uh, his performance on the mound. Charlie Brown needs uh, mercy. Lucy needs grace. But uh, (laughs) Charlie Brown is helpless. He needs mercy. Now, it would appear here that Jesus is saying, if we're not merciful to people around us, then God won't be merciful to us. But that's not the point at all. It's contrary to everything we know from Scripture. It works the other way. It's because God has been merciful to us that we're able to extend mercy to others. When we see the depth of our own need and our own personal helplessness, then we're able to extend forgiveness to anyone. What Jesus is saying here is that the measure of our understanding of our own forgiveness and the mercy extended to us is the measure of mercy that we'll extend to others. If we really see how helpless we are and how much God has given, then there's nothing that we won't forgive. Doesn't make any difference who we have to live with or what their behavior is or how they, how they uh, perform or respond. It may be someone in your business that you've had to explain something to over and over again and cannot get it right or will not get it right. But Jesus says we'll keep on extending mercy to them if we understand the way God has, has been merciful toward us. Further on in, in the Gospel of Matthew, we're told the story of, uh, well, uh, the question. Peter asked Jesus, how many times should I forgive my brother? Seven times? And Jesus said, no, 490 times. Or in effect, an infinite number of times. And then he tells the story of the man who owed an infinite debt, millions of dollars, from which he was forgiven. And immediately he goes out on the street and he grabs some debtor that he has and he says, pay me back the two or three dollars that you owe me. And the man can't, so he, he, he casts the man into debtor's prison. And he goes back to his creditor and the creditor says, he rescinds his offer of amnesty, of forgiveness, because he apparently he doesn't understand how much he's been forgiven. Now that's the point that Jesus is making here. If we really understand how much God has forgiven us and how merciful God has been to us in our helplessness, then there's no amount of of then, then no amount of effrontery that we can't put up with. No one can sin against us in such a way that we can't accept it and extend mercy. The sixth beatitude is found in verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. There are two terms that are used in the New Testament for purity. One means single-minded, the other means cleanliness, and it's the latter use here that Jesus has in mind. Blessed are the clean in heart, those who are morally pure. And it's a heart condition that he's talking about, not outward performance, but purity in inner heart, purity in reality, what we really are. And I think the way we know what we really are is to observe ourselves in situations where no one else can see what we're doing. What do we do when we're at home and the kids are gone to school and everybody else is gone and you're at home all by yourself and no one is there to see you? How do you behave there? What are your activities? Or you're in a strange town where no one knows you. No one can check up on your behavior. What do you read there? What kind of movies do you see? What sort of activities are we engaged in? Or in your own thoughts, where no one can see you. What do you think about? What are the thoughts that you concentrate on? You see, that's what Jesus is talking about. And if those, he says, that are pure in heart, pure in reality, are submitted to God in spirit, in their heart, that see God. In other words, God is real to people like that. Is God real to you? Is he real to me? Or or does he seem far off and withdrawn? It may be, because we're not pure in heart. Jesus put it another way in John 14. He that has my commandments and keeps them, he it is that loves me. And he that loves me will be loved by my Father and we will love him and make ourselves real to him. So if your mind is filled with sexual fantasies or if you're engaged in activities that you know are contrary to the will of God for you, you may find that God is not real. But when we obey in those areas, then God becomes very real to us, very precious. The seventh beatitude is found in verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Apparently, that quality above all others designates us as true sons of God if we make peace, because that's what God does. He's a peacemaker. He doesn't create turmoil. He brings peace, reconciles people. There are some people who go through life leaving turmoil in their wake everywhere they go. They just leave distress and they upset people because they're demanding and they want everything to center around themselves. But the characteristic of a son of God is that he serves and he reconciles and he makes peace wherever he goes. He doesn't He doesn't make situations difficult. To the extent that he can, he tries to, to bring about uh, peace and reconciliation. The meek don't take offense. The peaceful don't unnecessarily give offense. And then finally, in verse 10, the eighth beatitude. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who uphold standards of truth and righteousness, who believe in the truth and act accordingly. He does not say here, blessed are those who persecute you because you're obnoxious. Because there are some Christians who are, unfortunately, downright obnoxious. As a friend of mine says, they're the kind of Christians who make me want to be a Buddhist. (coughs) Dear old Mel Trotter, the evangelist, used to say, there are a lot of Christians I know that are going to heaven. I know they're going to heaven. I just wish they'd hurry up. (laughs) Whereas a little limerick goes, uh, to live above with those we love, that will be endless glory. To live below with people I know, that's another story. And it's uh, sometimes tough to get along with Christians because they can be uptight and self-righteous and uh, very difficult to live with. And Jesus is not talking about that sort of righteousness. He's referring to people who live the truth and suffer for it. Because you will, you know. They put Jesus to death for living perfectly. And we shouldn't expect any better treatment. Don't be surprised if the world doesn't like you, doesn't appreciate you, doesn't reward you, promote you, love you for your behavior. They didn't, Jesus. I have a good friend back in the San Francisco area who is uh, a very successful salesman. For the past five years, he's been the the number one salesman in his company, very successful financially as well. And I had heard over the Christmas holidays that he was fired. And so I called to find out what had happened it turns out in his particular company, this isn't true of all firms, but in his company there was a great deal of pressure put on these salesmen to perform. They had quotas that they had to meet, and it meant sacrificing their families. These men were working 12, 15 hours a day, and um, they were spending very little time with their families, and as a result, their families were beginning to break up. And John decided that he would no longer do this that his priority was his relationship with Jennifer and his children and he simply refused to do it. He set a limit to the number of hours that he would spend on company business and the rest of the time belonged to his family. And uh, the people in his firm noticed that something was different about John. And so they began to come to him and ask him what, why he was doing what he was doing. And he explained from his standpoint as a Christian that the second priority in his life was his family and his business was third. And he wasn't going to allow the business The company store to interfere with with his responsibilities at home. So some of these other men started making some changes in their life, and his boss fired him for undermining the morale of his salesmen. Now, that doesn't happen in all businesses, but that happened in this particular firm. He was persecuted for righteousness' sake. And that's what Jesus is talking about. We can expect it. But, as verses 11 and 12 tell us, we're in good company. Because when people insult us and persecute us and falsely, notice the falsely, say all kinds of evil against us, we should rejoice. For a twofold reason, we have a reward in heaven, and secondly, they persecuted the prophets who were before us. And as Paul puts it, everyone who determines to live a godly life will suffer persecution to some extent. Now, these are the Beatitudes, and what follows, as one interpreter puts it, is similitude. Those who live like this, he says, will be like this. Verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. We're like two things. He tells us we're like salt and light when we act as he's described in the Beatitudes. Salt was used in Jesus' day as a preservative. They didn't have uh, refrigeration. They didn't can things as we do. The only way they could preserve meats was to the salt them. So salt was used to arrest the spread of corruption in the world. And Jesus says that's the way we arrest the spread of of uh of evil in the world. By living like this. You want to make an impact upon your community, your neighborhood, your office, your school, then live like this. It doesn't take many people living like this to have an effect upon society. Salt is a very small... It can, it can exist in small amounts in a very large medium, and it does its work far beyond its size. One or two people in an office living like this can change the whole climate of that office. I've seen it happen in fraternity houses and other places where men will determine to be righteous men, and they arrest the spread of corruption. Likewise, he says, you're like light, and no one puts light under a bowl or hides it. You let it shine, because light dispels darkness. The problem, as we know, is that the whole world lies in darkness. The God of this world has blinded the minds of those that believe not, and they really believe that if you push and shove to get your rights, that's the way to get ahead. And if you assert yourself and you're hard-fisted and hard-headed about life, you'll, you'll make it to the top. They really believe that, but they're living in darkness. And the way to dispel the darkness is to live like this. You see, what Jesus is doing is giving us the key to evangelism. You want to have an effect upon your neighborhood or your school? Then live like this. Because Jesus says in verse 16, Let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. That's the most significant statement I believe in in this entire section. When we live like this, people will understand that there's something different about us. They can't uh, attribute it to our personality or our education or our intellect or our cultural background. They'll recognize that it's supernatural. It comes from some other source. I believe we need to tell people that. I don't think it's enough merely to let your light shine, because they look at us and they may think it's there because simply because you're a together person. We need to tell people the origin of our life. But it's our it's our life lived before men and women, you see. That causes them, that, that draws them into a relationship with the Father who makes it all possible. If we want to have an effect upon our environment this is the way to do it. The children sing, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Put it under a bushel? No. I'm going to let it shine. Don't let Satan blow it out. I'm going to let it shine. Let it shine till Jesus comes. I'm going to let it shine. See, that's what the world needs. It needs salt. It needs light. And Jesus tells us here that you and, and, and the wording is very significant you and you alone are the light of the world Paul wrote there Jesus said these things after Plato and Aristotle and Socrates had taught but Jesus says that's not light you and you alone are the light of the world modern man is simply contributing to the darkness by his his efforts to dispel it And we and we alone, because we know the King and we have His light, can be the means by which corruption is arrested, darkness is dispelled, and people are brought into a loving relationship with God.